Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. When Russia launched its full-scale war on Ukraine in late February 2022, it led many countries to search for alternative trade routes to those passing through Russian territory and also to seek suppliers of energy resources to replace oil and natural gas previously purchased from Russia. The search brought a sudden new importance to Central Asia. The five countries of Central Asia have probably never enjoyed so much international attention as they have in the last two years. One sign of this is a series of summits the five Central Asian leaders, as a group, have attended. This new importance naturally has had an effect on the way they govern their individual countries. So how much has Central Asia's global status changed, and how much has it affected regional ties and domestic policies in the five countries? To discuss all this, I am joined by Catherine Putz, Managing Editor at the Diplomat Magazine and author of many articles about Central Asia, Nargis Kasenova, a Senior Fellow and Director of the Program on Central Asia at Harvard Davis Center for Russia and Eurasian Studies, and Luke Ancheski, Professor of Central Asian Studies at Glasgow University and author of several books on Central Asia, the latest being Analyzing Kazakhstan's Foreign Policy Regime, Neo-Eurasianism in the Nazarbayev Era. Thank you all for joining me. And and uh, Katie, I'd like to start with you. Can, can you give us an idea of where the Central Asian leaders have been going? Uh, where have they not been going is probably a better question. Uh, you know, I, I think when we think about the engagements that the Central Asian leaders have uh, done this year, uh, the first that comes to my mind is the China, the summit with China in May in Xi'an. Uh, and then there were uh, there was the uh, C5 plus one uh, leaders meeting in September in New York in the United States. Uh, and then there was the Berlin summit. Uh, those are sort of the three big ones. But throughout the year, there have been just dozens of high level visits um, from many countries. You know, you have Turkey, you have Italy, you have France. Uh, and so I think this really you know, if if we took the time to sit down and write out this list, I think this would probably be the year that has had the most diplomatic engagement. I haven't made that list, so I could be wrong, but it, it's certainly up there. Okay, thank you. Now, Guy, is it fair to say that the Central Asians have never seen this much attention to their countries? I would I would second that. Definitely, there there has been a lot of uh, a lot of symmetry this year and uh, and last year as well, and uh, it is driven by uh, by. What you outlined at the beginning, uh, Bruce, um, the all these growing divisions, uh, geopolitical shifts, geoeconomic shifts, uh, search for uh, more reliable supply chains, uh, energy uh, energy sources, and, and so on and so forth. Also, support in the various international bodies, UN General Assembly, etc. But I also want to emphasize that uh, the region it seems to be more ready for it. We have been seeing centripetal and centrifugal uh, trends inside the region over the past three decades. And uh, now we, s- I think we see a pretty good and promising um, centrifugal trend again when the countries of the region try to stick together more. And uh, I think we see a certain consolidation of, uh, of regional uh, regional identity. And that's something that that I think we all like. Okay, thank you. Luca, what are the Central Asian leaders getting out of this? I mean, we've mentioned energy resources and trade corridors, and certainly that's a big that's a big thing, part of this. Uh, but, but what are they getting when they go to all these meetings? Because certainly it seems like they have their hands out in every direction these days. 
Well, I think that in parallel to this, in, you know, increasing attention that they attracted internationally, there are some domestic developments that are of significance. And to me, the most important one of this is certainly the fact that the region is becoming more authoritarian. Mm-hmm. We've had a post-pandemic process of authoritarian entrenchment, which through some, you know, sort of revolutions, you know, like in Kyrgyzstan or attempted or success, sort of completed dynastic transition in, in Tajikistan and in uh, Turkmenistan or constitutional amendments like Uzbekistan and, Turk- and Kazakhstan, we do really have this, the current leadership enjoying as much power as probably ever had, which means that in, in a system like Central Asia, where foreign policy is not only mostly controlled by the president and their administration, but also foreign policy is a, fun- a function of domestic power interest. I think this, in- this increased attention, this increased involvement at in international level has resulted in a uh, sort of uh, further strengthening of the power. And this is something which, you know, we've seen by all of these um, different deals that they made, uh, the those with China, those with Turkey, uh, but even in the kind of more uh, ambiguous relationship with both the European Union or with Russia, on the other hand. So it seemed to me that you had this this consolidation and domestic power, which is carried out internationally ad- against the backdrop of this increased pa- symmetry that's happened in the last couple of years, Bruce. Yeah, thanks. Great. You know, I noticed that too, that it seemed like they were becoming more authoritarian. But Nargis, let me get to you with this question. Is this kind of strange? Because at the same time, Western governments are showing, obviously, much more attention uh, towards Central Asia than before. And engagement, including, uh, as Katie mentioned, you know, there was a C5 plus one summit in, in New York on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. It's the first time an American president has ever met with all five Central Asian leaders at one time. And yet it comes at, at you know, in a period when the Central Asian leaders are actually moving further from democracy and the, and the kind of values that the U.S. and these individual countries used to discuss regularly. Well, um, let me start by partially uh, contesting that. Um, well, I think the only country in Central Asia that has been moving away from democracy is Kyrgyzstan. The region, you know, has had consolidated authoritarian regimes uh, for for you know all these uh, all these years. So it is worrying what's happening in Kyrgyzstan. Let's so let's see how sustainable this new trend is, or whether you know it's another uh, kind of oscillation um, in. Kyrgyzstan's political political development. Otherwise, well, they, this used to be authoritarian regimes. Uh, they are authoritarian regimes, but I think we see some interesting dynamic uh, in Kazakhstan with the with the political reforms, with the introduction of uh, um, direct elections at lower levels. Uh, I see these as attempts at introducing more accountability in the system without threatening the system. Definitely, we, we haven't seen, you know, free and fair parliamentary elections or presidential elections, but, but I think the politics kind of at the lower level is getting uh, more interesting. Um, as for the Western engagement, well, democracy promotion, human rights promotion is not the only, uh, the only interest, uh, the only driver of, uh, of the engagement. And, um, I would see other, other drivers, other factors, uh, coming to the forefront much more, uh, much more forcefully. 
we uh, we see the international order as we knew it uh, now kind of breaking apart under a lot of uh, under a lot of pressure and uh, it is important for western countries to kind of to maintain that order and central asian uh, central asian states are on board with that they are interested in the in the maintenance of uh, of the international law, of the principles, sovereignty, territorial integrity, and all that, and we hear we hear this over and over in joint statements made by Central Asians and uh, and uh, Western Western policymakers. The there are security matters at uh, basically at stake. Energy security is very important for all parties involved. And in addition to that, I think there's certain crisis in the in confidence. The state of democracy in the West is, you know, kind of debated and maybe not as as good as uh, we would have hoped. Um, well, there was January crisis in the United States, the country I'm in now. We see kind of interesting elections in uh, in European countries. Uh, so I think it's a combination of factors. Thank you. Um, you know, Katie, the, Nargis was talking about security, and I like Nargis that you shifted right away to energy security. But uh, you know, actual security, considering Central Asia is located north of Afghanistan, that used to be the top of the agenda, and any conversation that any Central Asian leader had with another foreign leader. It, it, where, where is uh, what? What are the big topics now? Where did security drop to, and what are they talking about when they go and meet these leaders? What are the big topics now? Um, I think the sort of big topics, uh, it, it depends on the country. So when the United States, for example, uh, meets with Central Asia, um, Ukraine is a big topic. It's not always billed highly, but as Nargis mentioned, the sort of uh, the the concepts of territorial integrity and sovereignty, those things are very heavily emphasized. And, and I think we can read those as references uh, to Russia and the war in Ukraine. Energy security it was already mentioned, and that is a, a massive one, not necessarily for the United States, but for Europe. And, and the United States has certainly vested interests in, in Europe, Europe's security, including its energy security. Uh, and then, you know, I think one of the more interesting sort of things to come out of, for example, the C5 plus one was um, the idea of working with Central Asia on rare earth elements and sort of the uh, really the building blocks of future energy and renewable energy into the future and sort of the role that Central Asia may uh, play in that. And I think that that feeds into larger U.S. interests, but it, it certainly is in the interest of the Central Asian countries uh, to make themselves you know, a, a source for, for these materials that are, are going to possibly gain them much wealth, but also keep them sort of relevant. It is interesting that, you know, we're, we're however long into this podcast, and we're only now mentioning Afghanistan, which used to be the, the number one issue when you talked about Central Asia. I think certainly for the Central Asian countries that border Afghanistan, Afghanistan still shows up in all of their statements, you know, Uzbekistan, uh, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. Um, and, and when you look at when the Central Asian leaders meet, for example, with uh, Putin, Afghanistan is mentioned in those meetings also. Uh, and I, so I think that that's still very much uh, in the mind of, of regional leaders, but it is not the acute crisis that either it was or that everybody believed that it was. But those are some of the, the, the things that we see in these statements. Great. Thank you. Um, Luca, to stick with energy security for just a second, um, you know, this, everyone knew that the Central Asians had all these resources for a long time. Uh, now they're getting, uh, like we've been saying, there's a lot more attention being paid to that during these summits. Um, who's actually making progress on getting energy resources, new 
energy resources out to some of these countries. I mean, Bruce, I think that you've got a, this big gap between what they say they want to do and what they are actually able to do. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, the, the, the two big uh, exporters, which are Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan, they have not significantly changed the direction of the energy trade. Uh, I mean, we, we found out this year that there's still over than 80% of Kazakhstani gas or Kazakhstani energy uh, traded gets uh, to Russia, whereas uh, Turkmenistan gas pretty much exclusively goes to China. So there is a lot of uh, talks, uh, but not much change. But talks is important nonetheless. It's important because it, it really uh, sort of, to me, gels with this idea that uh, there is a polarizing Eurasia at the backdrop. You know, like the invasion of Ukraine made uh, Eurasia, you either with Russia or you against Russia, especially you know, when you see that scenario from, you know, from, from Europe where I am. So in that scenario, you do really have the opening on new opportunities to change uh, the direction of, of, of your energy trade. I haven't really followed that much what Kazakhstan is doing in that in that way. But of course, I've been doing much more work on, on the changes or the, the prospective changes of uh, Turkmenistan gas. There are a few interesting options that seem to be opening. Uh, the reality, though, is that um, these energy systems, which are very large and very rich, are actually still managed with an authoritarian outlook in mind, which means that before the profit, within the change, you have to look after the elites that uh, regulates and manages these resources, which makes all kind of uh, deals difficult to reach in the short term. And also in, in terms of infrastructure, of course, there is hope. You know, there is the promise of a future country with infrastructure, but this kind of infrastructure are extremely difficult to build. And we saw that in the case of Turkmenistan with both TAPI, which has to go to Afghanistan, and also in the continuous uh, talks that are about building pipelines they go across the Caspian Sea. So I think that maybe the moment is coming, but we're not there yet. But I think that there could be momentum for something major happening in the next couple of years. Um, you know, let me follow up on that. Since you mentioned Turkmenistan, um, you know, we know that Turkmenistan has been, they have their, po their policy of uh, positive neutrality, which a lot of people have equated with being simply isolationist. Has has the change in, in geopolitics since Russia invaded Ukraine actually pulled Turkmenistan somewhat out of its isolation? I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned that they talk about some of these deals and they have talked about it, but they're talking about sending gas to Europe a lot more than they used to and talking about shipping gas to people that you didn't consider, uh, Iraq, for instance, uh, in the past, um, much more than they used to. Is, is Turkmenistan kind of emerging as a side effect from Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, I think that's the, the the scenario has changed for them as well. They realize that the China trade is, is no longer sustainable in the long run, not because it's insubstantial, but because it's unlikely to grow. Because China sets a limit to how much gas they, they buy from a, from a given producer, which means they now have to seriously look at uh, different options. And, and the two main options are those that go across the Caspian, which, you know, to me is very complicated because you open a, a Pandora box when you start to talking about gas routes that bypass Russia or you know, they don't have Russian's blessing. To me, the key to Turkmenistan international relations in general is how the regime interprets the border with Iran. Should that border become somewhat more 
pull somewhat more conducive to trade, especially energy trade, where you deal, you really do need a change. I mean, there is a new president in Turkmenistan. There is uh, a somewhat different elite, well, you know, same elite, but with some changes. And it seemed to me that if they want to keep growing, especially in the authoritarian sense, you know, using resources as a way to um, kleptocratically control the country, that's the kind of border they had to open. So, but again, it, we're not there yet. Uh, and considering the size of the trade that happens, uh, that they may happen across the Kazakhstan, which is kind of minor, that could be the prospect, you know, which is trade with Iran or through Iran that may change Turkmenistan foreign policy because this is a country that exports just one product, product so which means that the whole economic foreign policy is predicated about this gas trade. So let, let's just watch this space and see what happens in the next couple of years. Can I j- jump in, Bruce? Go ahead. Yeah, um, I think there is a small silver lining, or maybe not so small, actually, with Turkmenistan um, over the past couple of years. I think they have been a little bit opening up uh, to the dialogue and cooperation on on climate change-related issues. And recently at the COP, uh, they made that pledge on on methane reduction, uh, reduction, sorry, uh, methane emissions reduction, which is uh, which is huge given you know how much <laughs> how much Turkmenistan is is emitting. So uh, so maybe you know something good will come out of it uh, of that perceived need to to cooperate more to reduce uh, dependencies. But I fully agree with uh, with Luca. The they are locked in in these uh, relations. Uh, the the infrastructure is there. Um, the pipeline from Turkmenistan is to China, so they have to. They are fully re- dependent on Chinese market, the same way as Kazakhstan is dependent on uh, Russia for its for, for the transit of its oil. Ninety percent of Kazakh oil is exported via via Russia, and they can't, you can't change it overnight or even over a couple of years. Uh, and in the other energy sector, in the this you know in the in the sector of renewables, uh, there are more opportunities, more flexibility. And we see how uh, how external powers are trying to develop cooperation. Central Asian states are also are very active now in trying to develop these different uh, different cooperation frameworks. And as uh, as Katie mentioned, uh, there are all these partnerships uh, uh, blossoming over the development of the uh, rare earths, critical critical materials. Uh, we see similar dynamic with the with the re- renewables. Um, I would add uh, the Gulf states into our discussion. I think it was very important that there was a Gulf uh, Cooperation Council summit with Central Asian states uh, this year, uh, and renewables are a big part of it. Uh, water security, uh, food security. So, so we see this kind of diversification of uh, of links, relations, investments, and so on. Uh, thanks. And actually, let me follow up on that with you real quick. You know, some of the contracts that Kazakhstan has signed with Western companies in recent months, and I mean during the trip to uh, the C5 plus one in, in New York, and then the meeting in Germany, were focused on rare earths uh, and also uranium development, uh, both with U.S. companies and with German companies. How important is are these resources for the Western countries? And does this make Kazakhstan something of a new El Dorado for rare earths? With the ongoing energy transition, uh, rare earths, and I think probably it's better to use the term critical materials uh, as more inclusive. And, uh, well, 
obviously these are very important and now um, China has a full dominance uh, in this area and US, European Union, uh, they are trying to decrease this dependence and that's why they're looking for for other supplies, for alternative alternative supplies. And Central Asian states can become, uh, you know, one uh, one of the sources, this kind of an alternative source of these uh, uh, critical materials. But rare earths and critical materials are not that rare. They uh, they exist in different uh, different parts of the world. So it's it is important now to use this window for opportunity and to actually move ahead, uh, sign contracts. Start developing, uh, start developing uh, these uh, mineral fields. Um, so, uh, so, so the window of opportunity is there, and it's good there is interest, and Kazakhstani government definitely wants to uh, grab this opportunity. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Uh, and a reminder, we're talking about Central Asia's new global importance since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And my guests are Nargis Kasenova, Senior Fellow and Director of the Program on Central Asia at Harvard Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies, Luke Ancheski, Professor of Central Asian Studies at Glasgow University and author of several books on Central Asia, the latest of those books being Analyzing Kazakhstan's Foreign Policy Regime, Neo-Eurasianism in, in the Nazarbayev Era, uh, and Catherine Putz, Managing Editor at The Diplomat Magazine and author of many articles about Central Asia. Kat, uh, Katie, I want to get to you on this because uh, I want to talk a little bit about renewables, um, not so much what they can export from Central Asia, but about attempts to bring renewable energy to Central Asia. It's been a key uh, topic, and, and I think everyone, strangely, in all the C5 meeting summits that they've had except the one with russia where they they a little bit they plugged ross adam made its pitches for nuclear power plants in kazakhstan or and uzbekistan but otherwise uh, um that was it but everywhere else that these five guys go this has been one of the the topics at the top of the agenda is renewables how important is that for central asia i mean I i think it is certainly uh there, there, there are a couple ways it's important. There's, there's sort of the rhetorical value. You know, it is important to these countries to be seen as on the forefront of, of renewable energy, even if I think as Luke pointed out, this is a lot of talk. It's not necessarily quite there yet. You know, Kazakhstan's economy is still based on oil and gas. Turkmenistan's is still based on, on, on oil and gas. And so, you know, at the same time, there have been a number of, of projects announced. Uh, I'll take Kazakhstan as an example. You know, at COP28, um, there was a lot of discussion about several uh, wind farm projects that that Kazakhstan has agreed. Uh, one is with the United Arab Emirates. Uh, there's another one with uh, France, with a, with a French company. And, and these have the potential to sort of add to the share of renewables in Kazakhstan's sort of energy mix. Um, but it's, it's nowhere near sort of uh, where, you know, I think some people would say these things need to be. But, you know, I, I think these provide avenues for development that is not necessarily threatening to the existing sort of power structures around energy in the region. Uh, you, you mentioned that, you know, Russia doesn't really talk about the renewables with, with the Central Asian countries because Russia's energy relations with the region are, are fossil fuel based and they will continue to be. And that is still a huge part of these countries' economies. That said, uh, you know, these developments offer a country like Kazakhstan an opportunity to make ties and sort of make deals with additional partners. And, and we haven't said 
said it yet, but multi-factor or multi-vector diplomacy still plays a, a huge role, I think, in Kazakhstan's outlook on the world. And we see that with these kinds of deals. I want to mention also sort of the the uranium uh, issue. You know, Kazakhstan is one of the lar- the world's largest producers of uranium, uh, and that has been true for a long time. And so, as other countries look to nuclear as a as an option in the renewable energy mix, um, one that I, I think has its share of controversies around it, but is certainly France, for example, uses a lot of nuclear power. Kazakhstan has sort of further opportunities to make deals in that in that uh, sector as well. Okay, thank you. Uh, boy, we've still got a lot to talk about, not much time. So let's move on to Middle Corridor real quick. And Nargis, I know you just hosted a, a conference on Middle Corridor. How much progress has the, have the Central Asians made toward opening this so-called uh, Middle Corridor? I mean, obviously, the what the European Union countries would like to see is that it could totally replace the Russian transportation routes, which it doesn't seem even close to being able to replace yet. But uh, have they made much progress in the last 20 months, 22 months? Well, there have been a good amount of progress, but I don't think it can fully substitute the, the northern the northern route. But definitely now there is an opportunity um, because well the the well going through Russia now is a little is problematic uh, and uh, we did see the the reduction in container container freight uh, across uh, across Russia for obvious reasons um, so there is an opportunity but I think the kind of the potential of the middle corridor is well limited. The World Bank report gives pretty optimistic assessment of what the Middle Corridor can do, but uh, but even with that, uh, I don't think it can substitute uh, uh, can fully substitute uh, the, the the Northern Route. Among Central Asian states, uh, Kazakhstan is the main um, the main pusher, the main agent, uh, and. Uh, it's understandable why uh, why Astana is pushing it because uh, Kazakhstan is the main beneficiary of the of the routes and already has the infrastructure uh, built in Kazakhstan. It needs to improve the infrastructure on the Caspian shore. It needs to kind of uh, together with uh, with other participant states streamline the logistics. Well, enhance enhance infrastructure, address uh, upcoming challenges like the shallowing of the Caspian Sea. Uh, but I do see I do see progress. Um, Azerbaijan is on board. Georgia is on board. Turkey is very much on board. The EU now is on board. Uh, we need investments. What I thought was interesting uh, when we discussed uh, uh, discussed the report with the uh, with the World Bank um, manager was that uh, actually uh, the uh, the money the money is not a problem. There is plenty of finance that can uh, that can help uh, foster the middle corridor. It's more kind of really uh, pulling, you know, for the, the countries need to pull themselves together and uh, and improve the the, uh, the the soft infrastructure of the um, of the middle corridor. And so, so the challenge is there. Let's see if uh, if you know we'll see much progress, uh, much progress next year. Yeah, let me let me stop here. Okay, thank you. Um, Luca, you know, for, we've been watching Central Asia for decades now, and, and these, the leadership of all these countries have pretty much been advertising exactly that. We're the crossroads of Eurasia, making these allusions to the old Silk Route, all that kind of stuff. 
can we at least say that this is something of a watershed moment where after all these years, the world is finally is starting to pay much more attention to the potential of Central Asia as a trade corridor? And, and does this has this helped Central Asia and, and probably will, will it continue to help Central Asia in its goal for connectivity? No, absolutely. I mean, I think that it is, uh, there is an un- unprecedented level of international attention that is thrust upon, upon the region. Mm, but, uh, I mean, three decades onwards, you know, since independence, I think that it's time to transform this attention into actual results. So, I mean, the, we saw that the, mm, the imposition of connectivity model from China, actually, has not uh, led to dramatic change. Well, it, it has led to, to, to the uh, establishment of directional trade going towards China, but it's not really diversified that much. In fact, it created, as Nargis was saying before, this dependency of Kazakhstan and not Turkmenistan onto China. Uh, I would like to see uh, the development of mm, truly multidirectional trade from the region, uh, uh, you know, in the next five to ten years. And, you know, the, the, the this attention coming from all over, from different sides, you know, the Middle East, China, Europe, can only be a benefit if they are able to transform, you know, like and transform their potential into actual outcomes. And uh, we've seen that in the case of China, this, this hasn't really happened all the time. Uh, so there is a step change required. And the step change can be required uh, is that, uh, the, the the authoritarian outlook of these states become more globalized. I mean, Uzbekistan has opened the, the way in that in that sense. You know, like this new this new modern this new modernized authoritarian uh, authoritarianism that we saw in Uzbekistan in 2016 has globalized fairly successfully. Uh, Kazakhstan has been there for a while, but we now need to have this this step change in the establishment of truly multidirectional relationship, not only out with the region, but also within the region. So I think the first step to have a more sort of globalized Central Asia is really the creation of working, effective, flexible trade uh, relationship within the region. That's something which, you know, it may be happening in the next five or ten years as well. Can I add to that? Can I draw on that? Okay, uh, please, Well, a- absolutely. I, I, I agree with uh, Luca. I think um, intra-regional cooperation is happening. We see improvements in, in this regard, and that's something that I started with. I think we do see a certain consolidation of uh, regional identity, Central Asian identity. But here I also want to add the uh, the growing connectivity with, uh, with the South Caucasus, with the region of South Caucasus. And that was one of the findings of the World Bank report um, that they envision an increase an increase in the uh, in trade between the two uh, between the two regions, and that's actually where most of the increase will take place, rather than you know the, along this Europe uh, Central Asia corridor, uh, and that's where the mo- most promise is. And um, obviously, this connectivity between the two regions can really work nicely if uh, there is more uh, cooperation connectivity connectivity inside uh, inside the region of Central Asia. Uh, and it seems to me that now we are more ready for it for, for it than in the early 90s, for example, when there was a push uh, in this direction, when there was an attempt to create a Central Asian Union. I think now we are more ready. And uh, the well, the nation state building processes have been, uh, we, we can argue about that, but, but definitely Central Asian states are 
you know, more like nation states now than they, they used to be in the, uh, in the early, uh, 1990s. And, uh, they, uh, they have, state institutions, they have uh, uh, some national identity, and uh, the kind of they're more secure in this in this regard. So they can actually afford themselves to cooperate more and to create, uh, to create certain interdependencies through this process of uh, Central Asian cooperation, maybe, you know, embryonic uh, integration. Okay, thank you. Katie, I got to give you a chance to, to comment on this too. Uh, middle quarter, but you know, do you think... Um, Again, as I mentioned, the Central Asians have been billing themselves as a, as a big trade hub for the Eurasian continent. Have we at least seen something of a, a start or a, a new push toward realizing that dream one day in the last you know, few months since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when it comes to the middle corridor, you know, it, it's an idea that is 20 something years old. I think Turkey proposed it in the early 2000s. But it, it is it is very possible that it is an idea for whose time has come. You know, there is certainly more interest in realizing it uh, on the European end than there has really ever been. And I think that's reciprocated in Central Asia. Uh, as as Nargis pointed out, and, and Luke also pointed out, you know, there might be limited uh, the the ability of the middle corridor to sort of take uh, the the northern routes out is is sort of a pipe dream, right? But it can sort of add another sort of route uh, that is useful for Central Asian countries. But I think one of the things, and, and Nargis mentioned this, you know, there's there's the hard sort of infrastructure aspects involved in this, and then there's sort of the uh, there was a uh, EU study on the middle quarter that came out this past summer um, that used the the phrase sort of soft connectivity, and that had more to do with sort of local regulations and the sort of the borders and and, and a whole bunch of sort of institutional issues uh, that that need to be resolved in order to operationalize a project of, of that scale. And I think that stuff is way less sexy to talk about than new rail lines, but you know trade has to move, uh, and and if you want that route to be uh, useful, it has to move smoothly. And so there's there's a lot of work to be done. But I think there's a lot more interest um, than previously in that. Um, one, one sort of question I have is what is the impact of this kind of engagement on sort of the domestic atmosphere and sort of domestic politics? Because, you know, as, as Central Asia becomes more interconnected with itself and more interconnected with the world, I think, you know, people um, start to sort of realize there are other ways of doing things. Uh, and, and I think it will be interesting to see how these systems adapt. Hey, great. Thank you. Still got a lot of ground to cover. Luca, uh, the fact that to return to the C5, the fact that they're traveling, you know, I, I've been joking. This is like the world tour 2023 for the five Central Asian leaders. They're all in all these cities. You know, during the first, for lack of a better way of putting it, during the first generation of leaders of Central Asia, there were many times where you couldn't have got you couldn't have had all five of them in the same room at the same time. They they just didn't get along that much. How much does it say that uh, about regional relations that the the five are traveling as a as a band uh, to all these different countries uh, to meet with a leader, a specific leader of another country? Well, I think it's it's an important signal, isn't it? Uh, we, there is this trend, as Nagis was saying before, that the regional relations are improving. They've been improving since twenty sixteen when. Was there's been a leadership change in, in Uzbekistan? So it, it seems to me that now these five um, elites, you know, with their presidents, 
do seem to have some kind of convergence in the way in which they see the regional relations within the region, but also how the region is perceived, uh, you know, outwardly. So, yes, I mean, there is some kind of a bend. To me, what was interesting is that we need to see how these different proposals from the outside, you know, from the US, from the EU, from the individual EU member states, from China, are actually received within the region and are digested and transformed into uh, actual projects. I was very interested to hear before that, you know, there is money, you know, like there is, so it's not just interest that is uh, attracted to Central Asia, but it's also, there is apparently, you know, a bit of cash uh, flying around the region for some kind of projects that involve the region and external parts. So this actually could be a a truly, a truly important moment, a watershed in, in the real sense of the word. But again, I like this trend to be to becoming more stronger, to becoming more visible, and also you know like and the thing is that if the Ukrainian war does not stop this trend, it actually makes me think that you could see more. And these five uh, leaders, you know, to to answer your question directly now, Bruce, I think they go get along fairly well. They don't really have this the kind of rivalries and problems that we've seen with the prior generations. And they've they all been able to understand the region in their individual foreign policy projects in a way that is converging and has got some kind of point in common. So this is uh, a positive development, as it was the connectivity from the law that was produced by Mitsyoyev. So again, you know, uh, let's just see what happened in the next few years. But the planets seem to have aligned in this particular area. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, and okay, we'll get to our last point. Although, if you have any comments that you want to make, that you issues that you don't think were addressed, uh, please feel free um, when I call on you to to mention to bring those up. Um, but what I want to ask is, you know, the the big the big debate, of course, that we see all over the place on social networks and at conferences is is uh, you know is Russia out? Are, are they on the wane? Uh, you know, what, what are their what's the future with Russia? Understanding that they're accepting that Russia is there for a long haul. Uh, is it fair to at least say that the Central Asians have grown more independent because of their much more frequent engagement with other foreign partners uh, than they were prior to February 2022? Um, Katie, I'll start with you. I have thought a lot about this question, and I don't know that I have a great answer. Uh, I'm still thinking about it. Uh, you know, I I am not so convinced that Russia is gone from Central Asia, and I don't think anybody's really saying that. But I do sort of hesitate to take, you know, Central Asia's engagements with other countries just at, at that face value as sort of a rebuke to Russia. Uh, because if you look at, uh, for example, Vladimir Putin's uh, very limited travels since the ICC warrant earlier this year, most of them have been to Central Asia. Uh, I think it's a it's a region that remains uh, very tied into Russia. And, and as you mentioned, can't really be extricated. I do think there have been more opportunities for Central Asian countries to engage globally. And so they are seizing those opportunities. But I don't think that they're sort of shaking the hand of the West and, you know, giving the finger to Russia. Uh, that's not really how I, I see that playing out. But we shall see uh, what the future holds. Great. Thank you. Uh, Nargis, I'll, I'll give you that question. Uh, let me 
phrase it slightly, but uh, is Central Asia in a stronger position when it deals with Russia? Because now they have more friends in the world uh, and, and some powerful friends that they've been very publicly courting ties with. Yes. Well, first, of course, Russia is not gone from the region, and Central Asians understand that. Uh, as um, Kazakhstani leaders like to say, Russia is a God-given neighbor, uh, and I would add for better or for worse. So there is understanding that Russia is there. Russia is our big neighbor, and there is no way we can kind of decouple from Russia, distance from uh, from Russia. But uh, but but something's definitely changing. Something has changed. Uh, there is a certain, I would say, emancipation of uh, Central Asian uh, states um, underway, not only states, but also societies. Um, we have been discussing decolonization uh, a lot. There is There are new generations, uh, and uh, they think differently, and they didn't grow up with the idea that Moscow is the capital, you know, is the capital of our um, of our country. And having partners and friends uh, outside uh, clearly clearly helps in this uh, in this endeavor. And I think on the Russian side, there is this growing understanding as well that something is happening that uh, Central Asian states, um, I wouldn't say distancing, but they are becoming more uh, more sovereign, uh, more well more independent from uh, from Russia and they're kind of trying trying to process uh, process that and uh, if you read the Russian experts the uh, there is a certain bitterness that you can you can sense in what they uh, what they say and what they write for example Sergei Karaganov uh, whom I'm sure our listeners uh, listeners know one of the top Russian experts on on, on foreign policy uh, he he said in an interview, "Oh, yeah, Central Asia. Of course, Central Asia will be on fire, but uh, but it's their own fault. They detached themselves from uh, from from Russia, and uh, well, so, so so there is there is this sense that Central Asia is going somewhere, right? Uh, and Russia needs to kind of deal with it. As and and another thing I wanted to add on uh, C five, we've been discussing C five plus one format, but I think it's also worth mentioning C five without one format. Central Asian leaders have been meeting for consultative meetings um, since two thousand two thousand eighteen, and I think that's that's very very important that uh, they've been having these regular uh, consultative meetings and discussing the regional uh, the regional cooperation agenda and trying to to move forward in this regard. No, thank you. Um, Luca, I'm going to give you the, the pretty much the same question, but uh, also throw in here too, we, you know, we remember that when uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping visited uh, Astana in September 2022, that, that President Kazakh President Takaya made a very big deal going and meeting him at the airport, speaking Chinese with him in front of the cameras. And then, of course, she said the words that they really wanted to hear in Kazakhstan, that you know, China will protect Kazakhstan's sovereignty uh, and, and territorial integrity. And is, is this in that, can you read the message that, that Kazakhstan is kind of saying to Russia, we got other friends now. And, and can we like transfer that onto other places, you know, other countries too, that Kazakhstan and Central Asia have other friends like Turkey and like the Arab countries and even the United States and European Union? 
Oh, well, of course uh, I can, you know, it is, it is unequivocal. Uh, the reality is that it's not just that, that Central Asia is changing, as Nagy said. Russia is also changed. Russia has got a, a foreign policy horizon much more limited now. They, they, they got the war that they need to, to worry about. They got the isolation they need to worry about it. They got the reduction of the foreign policy options they have to worry about it, which means that the Russia, the Central Asians are dealing with now, it's a much different Russia than, you know, let's say 10 years or five years ago, uh, which which makes me think that the options that are now presented to Central Asia of international engagement are happening out with the, the, the Russia orbit. And to me, that's important because uh, it's exactly what we were saying before. You, you got all this international... Uh, international uh, offers made to Central Asia, and Russia is not really able to, to counterbalance because they are distracted, they are enmeshed in the mess that Ukraine has become. And to me, that, that that's important because we're talking about an entirely different set of partners, even though we're talking about the same relationship. And uh, this has, of course, a counter-argument, the counter-argument that uh, is based on the data of Central Asian's economy circumventing the sanctions question mark, and also about the, the, the ingress in Central Asia of this mm, relocanti from Russia. Some of them left, some of them stay, but people-to-people ties are important, which are elements that make me think that you know there is still a very important relationship there. Mm, the fact that maybe it's not coincidental, is it, that we have the Central Asian states being uh, approached by all these international partners at a time at which Russia is uh, limited in its foreign policy options. And, you know, it, it is part of the process that, that we saw in, in the last 10 years, that, you know, when Russia polarizes the the the, 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 econ- the, 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 the geopolitics of Eurasia, states like cent- the Central Asian will always try to play different games at the same time, actually do... Uh, have an access to to foreign capitals. I mean, China, you know, is, is a very important partner, but I would look much more as states from the global south rather than the US and the EU. To me, that's something which I researched for a long time. Uh, the, the real key changer may be the, ero- the erosion of some, I mean, the transfer of some ties which are with Russia in a newly established relationship with the, the, the Gulf states and Iran. That's when you see probably the, the, the transfer of energy and other kind of trade. But it's still premature. But what is important, you know, and that's probably to, to me, you know, the, the, main, the main takeaway, and I think, you know, both Katie and Nagis, and Nagis too, having taught me so much, is that you now see this trend much, much, becoming much more clear. The, the contour of the geopolitical realignment have become certainly less blurry now. And, you know, and should things change in the same direction in the next two or two, three years, then we can start really thinking about, uh, you know, what are the elements of the new set of our international relations that have sent relations at their own center. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, does anyone have anything else they want to say, since I got three such experts on the program right now? Yeah, I, I, I wanted to sort of... Um maybe highlight something we didn't talk so much in in depth about, but I know you've covered in other podcasts. Uh, Nargis mentioned the the decolonization debate, and I think it's really interesting what this geopolitical moment has meant to domestic publics in Central Asia. And th- that's the kind of thing that, you know, looking into the future, we can't tell you where that's going to go. But I, I think that that is an incredibly important um, thing to not lose sight of. At the same time, you have governments sort of behaving as governments are going to do, which is uh, taking care of number one. 
But I, but I think that that's something that we should definitely keep an eye on for the future. Good point. Thank you very much. Can I add one one uh, yes. little yeah, comment? Well, definitely we are quite firmly by now in China's orbit. So traditionally we were in Russia's orbit. Um, with, over the past three decades, China became kind of this big planet, <laughs> which we are also uh, also quite uh, quite uh, strongly uh, strongly drawn. But but. There is the West and there is the European Union. And I think uh, Central Asians feel that it is important to keep keep strong strong ties to to the West as well. And here I'll quote one uh, one Kazakh diplomat who was explaining the importance of the middle corridor. And he said that it's not just an economic corridor, it's a civilizational choice. And I think Central Asians want to continue to be the in-between region rather than becoming kind of a periphery of one one power. So so we see these kind of opportunities now and we see the active efforts by uh, Central Asian um, governments to kind of to, to maneuver and to maintain this uh, this room for maneuver but but societies let's let's not forget about societies and what uh, what Cathy Kat, said uh, we uh, see the popularity of Western education. If you look at the, at the new universities opening in uh, in Uzbekistan, opening in Kazakhstan, there are many partnerships with uh, uh, with uh, American universities, with European universities, and I think it's incredibly important if we want to understand in which direction uh, the region will be moving. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, yes, we're at the 50-minute mark, so uh, I will wrap it up here. But uh, thank you to thank you, Luca, Katie, and Nargis for being on the program, and a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington D.C. And a reminder: you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you much, and we'll be back next week. Bye bye.